I am space shuttle astronaut Robert Hoot Gibson, and I had the thrill of going to space five times aboard the space shuttle. Back in the early 1980s, we were developing a major new space capability called the space shuttle. And we launched it into space 135 times, and we really rewrote the book on spaceflight for all time. Today, we at NASA are doing the same thing with the next vehicle in space. The Space Launch System, or SLS, the most powerful rocket ever, is going to let us rewrite the story of space. We can go to Mars with it. We can intercept asteroids with it. The people at NASA today are developing this vehicle for our future endeavors in space. Join us on the journey. listening to our next giant leap a podcast that's out of this world and now here is your host mike williams hello everyone and welcome to a special half hour long episode of our next giant leap i am your host mike williams thank you for tuning in today this show is recorded live on talk Shoe. today i have a guest host joining the show he has a degree in electronics engineering a computer programmer and website developer he is an entrepreneur and has been involved in numerous community outreach endeavors please welcome to the show a very good friend of mine Andrew Serfozo. Andrew, thanks for joining me today. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. How's your day going today? It's been going wonderful, thank you. Uh, quite a quite a long day, but uh, it's going good. And you? How have you been? Uh, I, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Now, first I want to say that uh, today's format is going to be a little different for those of you that have been listening to the show for a while. It's going to be more interactive a little less scripted, and it, we should have a lot of fun today. Today, we're going to be talking about the Space Launch System, the biggest rocket ever built, and the rocket that someday will take us to Mars and beyond. But first, the news. Do you have any artistic creativity? If so, then NASA wants you on its next space mission. NASA is asking the public to send art to an asteroid on its new OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. OSIRIS-REx stands for, and let me try and get this all out, Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer. It will be the first U.S. mission to bring a sample of an asteroid back to Earth. The spacecraft is scheduled for launch in September and will travel to asteroid Bennu. Once there, it will take observations of the asteroid. Then OSIRIS-REx will collect about two ounces of materials and bring them back to Earth around 2023. On February 15th, 2013, Bennu passed within 22,000 miles of Earth, the distance that our satellites fly in. The space rock, which has a 538-yard diameter, makes a close pass by the planet every six years. Scientists say that Bennu could hit our planet somewhere in the year 2182. That's why NASA wants to learn a little bit more about it. The development of the spacecraft has been a hugely 
creative process, so it's fitting that the public also be involved in it, in the creativity. The submissions of art that are allowed may take the form of a sketch, photograph, graphic, poem, song, video less than two minutes in length, or other creative or artistic expression that reflects what it means to be an explorer. Submissions will be accepted until March 20th through the Osiris Rex Instagram or Twitter account. All of the artistic submissions will be placed on a microchip, which will be taken to the asteroid and remain on its surface. And I'll have links in the show notes to those sites. Now, it's an interesting concept, you know, sending uh, art or a photograph or something of that nature, putting it on a microchip and sending it to the asteroid. This is not a new concept for NASA. They have done this with names on other spacecraft. It actually goes back to the uh, space shell era where you could put your name in the website and then it will all those names were taken, put on a chip, and then uh, sent up to uh, space. Uh, so Andrew, what do you what do you think about you know NASA doing this uh, and getting people involved on these missions of putting names, putting art on these little chips and sending them to you know Mars or asteroid or up in space. What, what do you think about that? I think it's a good idea. I'm not sure, you know, what anybody's going to be able to do with it once it's up there. But uh, it'll be a, what do you call it? It's kind of like something similar to name a, name a star after somebody. You send it up, you know, a legacy of yourself. Well, to Mars. I, I, I think it's a great way to get the public involved. And, and yeah, it's, you know, it's just a little piece of data that's on a little microchip and it's going to be sitting on whatever planet. Uh, but it's a good way to get the public involved in, in spaceflight. Yeah. And I, I think that's, uh, that's a uh, great idea that NASA has had in the, in the previous years. Well, anyway. I, I mean, I agree with you. It's something, it's something that people will, you know, appreciate and it'll get more involvement as far as the public is concerned by all means. Okay. Well, anyway, um, there's a big event in new in the news today. Uh, three International Space Station crew members, two of whom have been in orbit nearly a year, are coming back from space today. The Expedition 46 crew, which consists of one-year crew member NASA astronaut Scott Kelly and his Russian one-year kind of counterpart. Mikhail Koronenko will join Soyuz commander Sergei Volkov for a ride back to Earth today. Kelly and Koronenko have spent 340 days in space doing a whole slew of experiments on how the human body reacts to long-duration spaceflight. What scientists learn about these experiments will help NASA on the journey to Mars. So here's a rundown of the events going on today. The hatch was closed at 4.40 p.m. Uh, undocking is scheduled for 8 p.m. These times are all Eastern time. And the deorbit burn is scheduled for 10.34 p.m. with a landing in Kazakhstan, Russia, around 11.27 p.m. this evening, if you're listening to the show live. After Kelly lands, he'll be flown to Houston on Wednesday. But his mission doesn't end there. NASA will be will spend uh, about a year analyzing the experiments 
he has conducted on board the ISS. Scott Kelly had mentioned that he misses human interaction with people other than his spacefaring colleagues. And one of the first things he wants when he returns to Earth is a salad. So the question is this. What would be the first thing you would have if you came back from almost a year in space? So I don't know about a salad, but uh, I'm thinking either fried chicken or pizza. But that's me. Fried chicken. I would, I would go with uh, burger and fries. Burger and Maybe fries. Maybe that or, uh, yeah, wings. Wings yeah. and uh, fries. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is if, you could, if your stomach can handle it. I mean, if you're in space that long, chances are you're eating quite healthy, so you're not going to be up to it. You probably get sick if you eat something well, like that. That's why I'm guessing he's choosing the salad. You know, what I've heard in the past is, uh, you know, astronauts, uh, cosmonauts, whatever, that uh, come back to Earth, you know, that they've spent a long time in space. And you get like a queasy feeling, uh, sick to your stomach a little bit. I mean, it's a lot of adjustment. Now you're you're coming back to gravity, and you would think that it would be, you know, human nature. We're used to gravity. It would be easy to adapt. In actuality, it's easy to adapt to space flight. Some astronauts take a couple of days to adapt to it, but then they're fine. And that's that's an easy transition, usually. But coming back to Earth, that's the hard part. It's it's just sure, uh, sure. It, your body changes so much. Well, you get you get the pressure of uh, you know you get the pressure of the atmosphere and everything, and that's that's going to take a toll on the body. I'm sure that's why it takes a little while to adjust to it. Exactly. If you want to watch Kelly's trip back to Earth, you can see all the events on NASA TV. You can also get a list of today's Soyuz landing events at nasa.gov. So we want to wish uh, all of them a safe trip back to Earth today. So now what I, have, it, uh, I have a question for you, Michael, real quick. Sure, go ahead. What would you uh, What would you say uh, What would you say you would enjoy if you had a chance to go up to uh up to like the space lab up there or just to go up in space for a day or two? What do you think you would enjoy most about it? Well, and just about every astronaut has said this, and the best thing is just looking at the Earth. You know, spending time, and especially the cupola up there, which is basically the window on the world. You open up the the, uh, uh, vents there, on the window mm-hmm. in the cupola, and you can uh, you can see Earth go by, and a lot of astronauts. In fact, just about everyone that has come back has said that's their favorite thing to do is just look at the world go by. So I would say that would probably be my my favorite. So exactly what is the space launch system? Let's start out with a few facts about the SLS. It is America's newest and biggest rocket ever. The first rocket called Block 1 is scheduled to launch in 2018 and it will be 322 feet tall, taller than the Statue of Liberty. The final configuration of SLS will be 365 feet tall and will take us to Mars and beyond. It will launch a crew of up to four astronauts. SLS will offer 
more payload mass and volume than any current launch vehicle. In 2015, NASA completed a critical design review, the first for a human-rated launch vehicle in over 40 years. The Space Launch System is scheduled to be delivered to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida for launch in November of 2018. So here's a more detailed explanation about what the Space Launch System is from Stephen Grande. NASA's new rocket, the Space Launch System, is building on the, the foundation laid by the Saturn V and the Space Shuttle. In fact, its current design looks a little bit like a mashup of the Saturn V and the Space Shuttle. That's because it's taking technology from both and combining them to go further than they ever could. That's one small step for man. Traveling through space is hard. That's why NASA's Space Launch System will have to be the most powerful rocket in history. How is SLS able to meet the challenges of exploring deep space? Well, when it comes to our journey to Mars and beyond, there are no small steps. Let's talk about how the SLS is like the Saturn V. The SLS is a staged rocket like the Saturn V. Once all of the fuel in a stage is used up, that stage is dropped to reduce weight. The two are also similar heights. The first version of the SLS will be 322 feet compared to 360 feet for the Saturn V. Now the Saturn V had three inline stages where the SLS will only have two. But the SLS does have two boosters on either side, and you know where those came from. The Space Shuttle's solid rocket boosters produce the most thrust of any rocket engine in history. The SLS will use the same boosters, but they'll be even more powerful because they have an extra fifth segment containing propellant. The SLS's two boosters combined will produce almost as much thrust as all five of the Saturn V first-stage engines. The SLS is also using the Space Shuttle's main engines, four of them at the bottom of the center of the rocket. These engines have been used since 1981, although they've been upgraded, improving performance and saving NASA money. They're also hugely reliable. Between ground tests and shuttle flights, they've already clocked over one million seconds of hot fire time, and that's before SLS ever lifts off. So NASA has built some pretty incredible vehicles. But the space shuttle couldn't leave low Earth orbit, and the Saturn V only went to the moon. How will the SLS combine their capabilities and get to Mars? It's because, even though the SLS is built on previous technology, NASA's improved it. Think about your phone. This phone from 2007 looks a lot like this new one, and they do the same basic job. However, this one has more power, is more efficient, and can plain just do more thanks to improvements in technology. Similarly, the first version of the SLS will weigh a million pounds less than the Saturn V, but it'll get to the moon. The second version will weigh as much as the Saturn V. It'll carry the same amount of fuel, but it's far more fuel efficient. And that's the key to getting to Mars. Technology has changed a lot since the shuttle program began back in 1972. Back then, this was considered a smartphone. To sum up, the physics of sending a rocket into space haven't changed, but our engineering has. NASA has figured out how to build on legacy technology while also improving it. It's like putting a roof on the house. And when you do that, you don't tear out the foundation. See you next time. Okay, so the Space Launch System is, and I get this question all the time, is it reusable? Is it coming back? Are they going to refurbish it? And, uh, you know, the, the Space Launch System is not a reusable rocket, unlike the Space Shuttle. And the reason that it's not reusable is there's a, there's a few reasons. You know, we had the Space Shuttle for 30 years, and it was a reusable rocket. It has to deal with money, okay, and the cost of 
of reusing these vehicles. The space launch system is going to be designed to be launched about once a year instead of the shuttle, which was 10 to 12 flights a year. Also, the shuttle, um, it was designed for reusability, but it was very expensive to maintain. So I guess, you know, right, I mean, right. do, do you have any views on that, Andrew, uh, other than what I've... I would say that uh, as far as cost is concerned, okay, you, you're making a... Uh, a spacecraft that's reusable, you have to uh, you have to keep the components to where they're uh, they're they're not degrading as much, you know, in within within each in between each flight. But then you have to re recoup them, I guess, in a sense, back to the proper specs is what would what would have probably cost them more money than than it's worth doing. It's cheaper to just design a you know a rocket that's going to go up one time and there's no you know no maintenance after the fact. You just make another one at a lot less expense and you're good to go. Well, the way it was explained to me it's, it's is a good choice. The way it was explained to me is that uh, SLS is designed to be launched once a year or so. So the shuttle was used over and over again, 10, 12 flights a year, and uh, it was designed for low Earth orbit, you know, and um, which SLS is not. So it just makes sense that it, it's cheaper to build an expendable rocket to go up and just burn up in the atmosphere. Right. Exactly. Okay, so we're going to exactly, talk... because you got to figure, okay, so you're, make, you're making a satellite, you're, you're making a re-entry re vehicle, the basic structure of the vehicle has to be has to be maintained, and then on top of it, you have to recreate the tiles. So I, I would I would think it would cost them more, really, to maintain than to just create a new new vehicle, new launch vehicle, exactly. which was the case with the space shuttle. So the core stage, let's talk a little bit about the core stage for a second. The core stage of the space launch system is being built by Boeing. It will tower 200 feet tall with a diameter of 27.6 feet. It will store 730,000 gallons of supercooled liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. It will have five segments, the engine section, liquid hydrogen tank, uh, the inner tank, the liquid oxygen tank, and the forward skirt section. The core stages are being built at NASA's Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans. It houses the Vertical Assembly Center, which is the largest spacecraft friction welding tool in the world. The welding tool is 170 feet tall and 78 feet wide. This tool will be used to weld the segments of the core stage for the space launch system. The biggest friction welding tool in the world. You know, people understand what a MIG welder is. They may understand what it's, where you have a stick where you weld with the stick or gas welding. Uh, this is a little bit different. It's friction welding, so it uses friction for the heat to make the weld. And by building this tool, which I believe opened in 2014, this uh, vertical assembly center at the Michoud uh, assembly facility. It can do one complete weld, so it doesn't stop and re-weld, which makes the weld stronger, so it can do one complete weld on the vehicle, and it can handle the whole core stage. Now, by doing this, you're going to save time, you're going to save money, and uh, two very important mm -hmm. aspects for, uh, you know, building this rocket. Let's talk about yeah. the legacy parts. Now, legacy parts are parts that came from either the shuttle era or the Saturn V era. The RS-25 engines, former space shuttle main engines, four will be used for 
SLS. There are 16 of them from the uh, shuttle program, which have had 1 million seconds of hot fire experience during ground testing and launch. Uh, they have been redesigned for the specifications of the space launch system, including a new electronics engine control. Now, the advanced five-segment solid rocket boosters. So here's a few facts about the rocket boosters that are going to be used. They will burn 1 million 385,000 pounds of propellant in two minutes. That is an average of 5.5 tons of propellant every second. The SLS boosters generate 20% greater average thrust than the space shuttle booster and 24% greater total impulse. Each booster produces 3,600,000 pounds of maximum thrust greater than 14 four-engine Boeing 747s at full takeoff power. During operation, the temperature of the FSB motor chamber gases reached 5,600 degrees Fahrenheit. At this temperature, steel does not melt, it boils. The stacked booster is 177 feet tall or as tall as a 17-story building. So the booster rockets... The uh, spa former space shuttle main engines, now the R-25 engines, are the legacy parts from the space shuttle era. And the Saturn V, you know, we're going back to that blunt space capsule, that design that we know. And, and uh, the Orion has been called Apollo on steroids because it's, it's, it's an advanced uh, uh, spacecraft which is a little bit like Apollo, but it's much different, and it holds. Oh, it's bigger, more, it's, yeah, it's more, big. uh, more technical. But yeah. you know, using the the former space shell engine, so there's 16 in the uh, in in stock, and that is a, a good way to save money. Now these engines have been redesigned and redesigned and redesigned over the years, over 30 years, a million seconds of hot fire experience. So we know they're they're they've been tested, they've been used, they're very reliable, and I think it's a right. great way to save money. Those first sixteen are already in stock, so why not use them? Um, well, here's my question for you. Um, okay, they have the they have the fire experience and you know and everything, but uh, would you? Hmm, that's kind of like with the space shuttle. You know, it's a reusable um, vehicle, but after a while, components do fail, so. Will you trust the rocket to go up, you know, after it's well, been Well, so I mean, the thing about these engines is after every shuttle flight, they went through them with a fine-tooth comb. And that's why, you know, it was so tedious mm -hmm. to, um, to refurbish the shuttle for next flight. One thing about those engines using liquid hydrogen and oxygen, uh, mostly liquid hydrogen, is that they're a lot different than the Saturn V F1 engines that use kerosene, which was a, a much dirtier fuel. So these engines, if you can see them after they're launched, they look like the inside of the bell looks like it's been steam cleaned because it's, you know, more efficient, more cleaner. Water, a cleaner yeah, fuel, water vapor. right? A cleaner fuel, and they've been they've been tested. We you know we know they work. We know they're efficient, and we have them in our arsenal. So, mm -hmm. you know, why not use them? Of course, after these flights, they're not going to be used again. They're going to burn up in the atmosphere or 
uh, fall to harmless debris in the ocean. So, um, but we have them, and they work, and they offer more thrust than the F1 engines, so why not use them? But I understand sure. that we have a question, and we have Brianna on the line, and she has got a question for us. Uh, Brianna, welcome to the show. Hey. Hey, guys. Hello. How are you, Brianna? Good. So, my So, what is your is- question? Why does the Space Launch System have to be so big? Oh, good question. <laughs> Very good question. What do you say, Mike? That's a great question, Brianna. And actually, no I have a little clip from Stephen again about why the Space Launch System has to be so big. The thing that makes space travel difficult is that everything we use to do it is so massive. To get to orbit, let alone to the Moon or Mars, you have to lift a lot of very heavy stuff. So how do you do that? How do you escape gravity, the force that holds us to Earth? Well, let's talk. (laughs) Traveling through space is hard. That's why NASA's space launch system will have to be the most powerful rocket in history. How is SLS able to meet the challenges of exploring deep space? Well, when it comes to our journey to Mars and beyond, there are no small steps. Let's talk about low Earth orbit first, which, compared to Mars, is relatively close. The International Space Station is only 220 miles over our heads. For years, the space shuttle got us to low Earth orbit. It weighed about 4.4 million pounds and could carry 54,000 pounds into orbit. That's only about 18 family sedans worth of stuff, and that's because of that 4.4 million pounds of weight, 3 million pounds of fuel. The shuttle's fuel weighed more than twice the shuttle, its external tank, and the solid rocket boosters combined. It's like driving a car that requires a 1,000-gallon gas tank. The shuttle got us to low Earth orbit, but what about the moon? Well, the moon is 240,000 miles away, which is 1,000 times further than the shuttle can take us. Thankfully, we don't need a thousand times as much fuel. The cool thing about space is you can coast. We've just got to go fast enough to reach the moon and let its gravity pull us into orbit. So you don't need a thousand times as much fuel, but you do need more. But the more fuel you have, the heavier your vehicle has to be, and the heavier your vehicle is, the more fuel you need. Tricky, huh? The Saturn V is the rocket that took us to the moon. It could carry 260,000 pounds into orbit. That's almost five times what the space shuttle could carry, and it could carry 100,000 pounds to the moon. However, to do that, it weighed six and a half million pounds, and six million pounds of that was fuel. That's right, to get to the moon, we had to build a vehicle that was over 90% fuel. Now, what about Mars? Well, when we go to Mars, it'll be about 50 million miles away. About 200 times further away than the moon. The space shuttle won't get us there. The Saturn V won't get us there. And we'd kind of like to come back. So the family sedan isn't going to get us there. We need something bigger. We need a van or a bus or maybe the biggest rocket in the history of the world. We need the SLS. The first version of SLS will get us to the moon. The second version will be the tallest rocket in history. It'll produce the greatest thrust and it'll get the most up into orbit. The second version of the SLS will have about the same fuel as the Saturn V, but where the Saturn V could only go to the moon, the SLS will go to Mars. Next time, we'll talk about what makes the SLS so powerful and how the space shuttle and the Saturn V paved the way to Mars.
So I hope that clears it up for you, Brianna. It's kind of a vicious cycle. In order to go out into space, you need a lot of fuel. And to carry that fuel, you need a really big rocket. And in order to get that huge rocket into space, you need more fuel. So that's why it needs to be a really big vehicle. Thanks for that great question, Brianna. So I think I think that uh, a lot of people have a... Um a mis, uh, misguided idea about how space travel works from uh, from all the movies that they watch, all the sci-fi movies, you know, basically they just jump in this space vehicle and off they go, you know, it looks like a rocket jet and, uh, you know, everything is real small and compact and this and that versus the real facts as, you know, you, know, you just play and you just describe. It's a vicious cycle. You have to have enough fuel to move this little bit of object just to get out of the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, that's something that uh, technology is going to, it's going to take a long, long time before technology catches up to where we can get to a point where it's uh, not that uh, dramatic. Well, um, you know, uh, this is this is the problem with uh, chemical rockets. Chemical rockets, you need more and more fuel. And in order to carry that fuel, you need more weight. In order to carry that weight, you need more fuel. Yeah. And um, something like uh, ion engines are uh, being developed as we speak. In fact, the ion engine was uh, used on the Horizon spacecraft, and it just gives that little mm -hmm. nudge and constantly a little bit more nudge and a little bit more nudge, and, and, and you get there. Unfortunately, sure, sure. Unfortunately, right now, it takes a really long time with the ion engines, and they're really small. Well, that you have Scaling to those up and... and uh, yeah, yeah, but you have to remember that. You have to remember that the ion engine is uh, only works once it, you know once the spacecraft is already in orbit. Um, the, the real issue we have is getting outside of Earth's gravity gravitational field, and that's where all that energy is required. So that's why all these spaceships are so big, just to get out of the you know the Earth's gravity. Um, I know there was a lot of experimentation, and I'm not sure exactly what happened to it, where they were basically doing vertical takeoff vehicles that would take off like a plane and then launch spaceship from once you know once in close to the outside of the atmosphere then launch a spaceship out into orbit or past you know outside of the earth's gravity but i'm not sure how far that's gone as far as technology and success you know well let's uh yeah exactly. that would be let's a good way to go so so that's our show for today I want to give a special thanks to Andrew Serfozo for joining me today on our half-hour live special. Andrew, is there anything you want to plug or uh, that what you're doing at the moment? At the moment, I'm actively doing something. Um, right now, at this moment, I am in the process of designing a new web application. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I design websites, and so my mind is constantly working on new ways to to make it easier on myself and yet others to design websites. And that's what I'm working on currently. Really cool and, stuff. Uh, and takes up quite a bit of time. And I understand... Well, people, not everybody. <laughs> I got you. And I understand that you're uh, going to New York pretty soon. What will you be doing there? Yes, sir. I'm going to be doing logistics for... Uh, I'll be doing logistical work for a friend of mine um, who does uh, insurance repair on uh, homes up there, weather okay. damage. And I'll be doing the logistics, uh, organizing the parts, online uh, marketing, things like that. And uh, it'll be, it'll so be a new experience for me. How can uh, how can people reach you if they want to get in touch with you? The best and fastest way is through email. If they have any questions for me or anything like that, and my email address is Drew D R E W at uh, Connect without the O, so it would be C N N E C T dot com. D R E W at C N N E C T dot com. 
All right, that's great. Okay, well, on an important note, unfortunately, this will be my last bi-weekly show. I'm not ending the show by any means, but I am unable to keep producing, at least for the time being, an episode every other Tuesday. So instead of every other Tuesday, I will be doing the show the first Tuesday of every month. So instead of the next episode being on March 15th, Our next broadcast will be April 5th. I'm sorry I have to do that, but I want to continue to produce good content, and in order to do that, I have to make this change in the format. As always, there will be links to everything talked about today in the show notes, and you can find those by going to mikewilliamsinc.wordpress.com and clicking on the podcast podcast but our next episode will be on tuesday april 5th nutrition in space what's for dinner it will air live on talk show at 7 30 p.m eastern time once again i want to thank andrew for helping me out today and as always i want to thank everyone for joining the show if you have any questions or comments you could drop me a voicemail at 321-351-8539 or send me an email at mikewilliams573 at gmail.com and don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at our next giant LP. Have a great month and I'll see you April 5th for another episode of our next giant leap. Bye everybody. Bye everybody.